0: Turn together to the book of Philippians. Our text this morning is chapter 2, the first four verses of the book of Philippians. If you would please give attention to the reading of the very word of God, it is inerrant, it is authoritative, and it is sufficient. Philippians chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let us now go before His throne of grace and ask His blessing upon His Word. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that You would condescend to meet with us this morning that by your Holy Spirit you would illumine your word to our minds and our hearts that you would convict us of sin that you would encourage us on to love and good deeds that we O Lord would do your will we ask all this in Christ's name amen it is amazing at times what people can do when they come together. You know the stories. You just have to say the names. The band of brothers that fought together through thick and thin through World War II. Even in sports, the miracle on ice team, full of nobodies, taking on the world. The famous 1979 Pittsburgh Pirates, who weren't supposed to go as far as they did, but They had as their theme song, We Are Family. We see it in missions around the globe. We see it in families and in neighborhoods. As people come together and are united around a common goal. That's some of what is happening here this morning in this text that Paul has for us. But what we will see this morning is that as people come together around the Lord Jesus Christ... It is not just things that they can do that are important. It is who they are and become in Christ that is important. This, in my opinion, is the linchpin of the book of Philippians. It's perhaps one of the most important doctrines and subjects in all of the scripture concerning the church. It is the doctrine of the unity of God's people. As they gather around the Lord Jesus Christ. It is something that the Lord has for us as we embark, as I have mentioned before, on our next stage of ministry. We must keep this in the forefront of our minds. It is a critical word in the life of our congregation today. And so what I would like us to see then are three things. First, I would like us to see Paul's exhortation to unity exhortation kids is a is a fancy word for command that begins with e and matches the other two points paul's command or exhortation to unity then we will look at the essentials of unity what does it mean to be united and then finally we will see expressions of unity in the life and the congregation of the lord jesus christ well let us look first then at paul's exhortation to unity It begins in familiar fashion. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, that so is that famous word in the Greek Bible, therefore, so, therefore. And as soon as we see it, we do what? We look back and we see what the therefore is therefore. And so we remind ourselves that Paul has just been speaking about the greatness of life in Christ and what it means to live a worthy life. He's just laid that out for us. And he says, as a result of that, because of that, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, if there is any participation in the Spirit, if there is any affection and sympathy, please complete my joy. You see, Paul is talking here about the unity of the people of God, and he wants us to see that unity is not just a useful weapon against the world. It's easy to see it that way, isn't it? We paraphrase Benjamin Franklin. United we stand, divided we fall. And our focus on our internal unity, on our being in Christ, is in order to withstand the assaults from outside. That's an expression of unity. But it's not at the core of what it means to be united. It's not at the core of God's purpose. You see, unity is an essential element of the Christian life. It is a hallmark of the gospel. It is the apostolic ideal. Paul is saying to this church at Philippi, I wish I could be with you. I wish you would live a life that is worthy of the gospel. And let me tell you, if there is anything that you have received from Christ... Please, complete my joy. Be united. You see, Paul here is exhorting them. He is not waxing eloquent. He is giving them pointed advice. He is not a modern politician who stands up and begins to say things, and when he's done, we wonder what he has said. He's merely mouthed platitudes to make us feel better. No, Paul is speaking directly to the hearts of the Philippians and to you and to me this morning. And look at what kind of an exhortation it is. Paul modeling the Christian life. It's it's a humble exhortation. He says, please, if there's any encouragement, if there's any comfort, if there's any participation in the Spirit, please, complete my joy. Paul could have easily said, you know, I did found your church. You know, I am working hard here. You know, I am out on the mission field. You know, I am an apostle. And it is a command of God that you be united. But instead, he speaks to them as a parent does to a child. Softly, tenderly, drawing them along. And don't be confused by the language here, where Paul says, if there is any this, and if there is any that. This is what we call a conditional clause. If, then. And sometimes you use if when you're not sure if something is true. If the Astros win the World Series. Well, maybe that's a case of if you're pretty sure it's not going to be true. There are other times when you say if, and you know it's true. You think about its truth. Listen, if you are a mother, then you know the love For a child, well, you're speaking to a mother. It's not a, well, I wonder really if she is. No, we know she is. And here Paul says, I know you have encouragement from Christ. I know you have comfort. And I want to remind you of it. And you see, he gives this exhortation here, starting by telling them, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if Jesus Christ has come alongside you, this is a motivation to unity. This word here for encouragement is a word that you well know. You may even know the Greek word. It's used so often. It's the word that's used for helper or comforter. Paraclete. It's the word often used of the Holy Spirit, of one who comes alongside and encourages, exhorts, pushes on. And Paul says, if you have had Christ come alongside you, if you have benefits from the Lord Jesus Christ, then this should motivate you on to unity in Christ. You see, if you have experienced Jesus' help in your life, if you have experienced the blessings by being united in union with Christ, then don't you desire then what Jesus desires? You see, his main emphasis in his high priestly prayer, John 17, was that we would be one, even as the Father. He are one. This should spur you on to give back all that Jesus has given to you. To reflect His glory. To respond as He would respond. It also reminds us of something else. Something that I think we like to block out. We like to think of our sins as a violation merely of God's law. Of a code. Of religious regulations, and all of that is true. But sin is more than that. Sin is a violation of our relationship with Jesus Christ, as much as it is a violation of God's law. It is a pushing away from Christ. It is not understanding how we are united with Him, who we are in Christ. And so Paul says, if there is any encouragement that you have gotten from the Lord Jesus... Please be united. But it's not just encouragement that you have from Christ. It's also comfort, if there is any comfort of love. I think specifically here in context, Paul is speaking about the comfort of the love of Christ. He is telling you and me, if we know forgiveness, if we know forgiveness in the love of Christ, then that forgiveness constrains us to seek after God's heart. Because you see, all of our good flows out of the good of God. What He places in our lives. How He renews our natures. And this just makes practical sense if we think about it. It is when we are loved and when we feel secure that we act for others. Isn't it? When we're concerned or worried or scared, it's very difficult to think of someone else first. But when you have, for example, a wife in a marriage who knows that her husband loves her, who knows that she is secure, who knows she doesn't have to walk on eggshells, who knows that he has her best interest at heart, that love showers out tenfold on the children because she's secure. We see it in our relationships with others as well. When we know that we are secure and loved, we cannot help but pour that out on others. This is the kind of comfort that the love of Jesus Christ brings to the church. But it's not just encouragement. It's not just comfort. It's also another one of our familiar words, participation or fellowship, koinonia, in the Spirit. You see, Paul says, the fact that you are in fellowship with the Spirit means that you are in communion with other believers. And that implies unity. You see, you have this gift of God. Do not fritter it away. Do not ignore it. Do not waste it. Put it to work. If there is any fellowship with the Spirit, then indeed there is communion with everyone else who is in Christ and has fellowship with the Spirit. You see, the purpose of the work of the Spirit is to bring about unity. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. He says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into how many bodies? One. Well, you don't know our differences, Paul. No, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. If you have the fellowship of the spirit, you have the fellowship of God's people. You are united with them. Do you take this kind of fellowship? Do you take this kind of blessing and not give back? And not respond to the love that God has given to you? You know, there's another thing that we can say about sin. By definition, sin is ingratitude. You see it in your children, perhaps in your spouse on a bad day. When you've worked hard, tried to provide something, tried to do something, and it's, well, you know, I don't really want that. It wasn't what I was looking for. It pains you. It strains your relationship if it goes on long enough, doesn't it? You see, that's the nature of sin. It drives us from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when Paul says, I want you to complete my joy and be united, he's really saying, I want you to be in a closer, deeper relationship with Jesus. It's essential. I want you to notice something else. Maybe you have seen it. Oftentimes, the benediction that will be given at the end of the service is, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forever. Now that you've just heard that, look at verse 1, of chapter 2. If there is any encouragement, advocate, paraclete in Christ if there is any comfort of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, complete my joy. Do you see how God in His grace and His wisdom equips us to deal with each other? He knows we can't do it without His help. He knows He must give us His grace. He knows He must prepare us to live shoulder to shoulder in close quarters. And He does this by His grace. We're built up Not just by our relationship with God, but also by our relationship with each other. Because you'll see, Paul doesn't stop simply speaking about what the Lord has done. He says, if there is any affection and sympathy. These two words here are related, but they're a bit different. Affection is the source. It is the root of this feeling. It is quite literally, in Greek thought, the way we think of the heart. When we see on a bumper sticker, I heart New York, or dogs, or cats. We think somehow of love springing out from the heart. So much so that on Valentine's Day, schools across the country, people give out little red hearts. Doesn't matter that in reality it's not quite a perfectly shaped, nice looking organ. That's what we think about. And the Greeks understood this because for them, the heart was their guts. It was their intestines. The fire in the belly. That's the source of this. But it has its outward fruit. It has expression among the people because that is what the sympathy is. You see, we don't just have love abstractly as something we think about. It flows out from us to others. You see, Paul is saying to the Philippians and to you right now, If there is anyone that you care about, if there is anyone that you have sat with, cried with, laughed with, loved on, if there is anyone in your midst that your affection has flowed out from, complete my joy. Be united as one. Be one people. Draw on that experience. Don't push it aside make it normal, make it ordinary, make it something you seek to do with everyone. This is part of our relationship with each other. It is the subjective side of salvation. Paul has talked a bit about the objective side of salvation, what Jesus Christ has done, how he has brought us from from death to life, how he has renewed us, how we have forgiveness of sins. And now here Paul says there's a subjective side too because you do have a new heart. And beloved, new hearts beat. New hearts love. You do have a new mind. And new minds have new sensitivities, new desires, new hopes, new dreams. You see, this flows out from the work of God. But it is something that expresses itself in our lives. Paul is not above using his own relationships and position to make a point. Paul says, listen, if there is anything here, please complete my joy. Can you, you know how happy I would be. You know how I would rejoice. You know how it would lift me up on the darkest of days to know that you are united. You see, this is a command. It's an imperative form. This is not a suggestion to complete Paul's joy. But it's a command rooted in his relationship with them. That's the goal of a minister. Every week I stand up here and command you to obey the word of God. Because to do any less would be a failure of my duty. But it has to be done in a relationship that we have with each other. It's why the church is called to have ministers and elders, not itinerant preachers. You see, Paul has this root of love for the Philippians. And he says, please be encouraged. Complete my joy. This is an exhortation to unity. And then Paul goes on to describe what this unity will look like. He shows us the essence of unity in verse 2. The first thing that we see that is part of the essence of unity is having one mind, being of the same mind. Now, verse 2 and verse 3 are a little bit difficult to work through. And translators do a very good job of describing the heart of what Paul is saying. You remember I said to you a few weeks ago that there was a time in which Paul was beside himself with emotion and he was stuttering over himself with grammar. Well, he does a little bit of that here, too. He leaves out verbs, and we have to insert them. But I think his meaning is clear. He says you need to be of the same mind. And literally, he says, you need to think alike. But that thinking is more than just saying, you know, we all agree that 2 plus 2 is 4, right? We all agree there are 50 states in the Union, right? We all agree that today is June 7th, right? That's not a basis for unity. That's just recognizing the same facts. You see, when Paul says, I want you to think the same thing, he's actually using the same word that is used here in chapter 1, verse 7. You remember when he says, it is right for me to feel this way about you? Same word. But wait a minute. We know feelings, those are gushy and bad and heart and not the brain, right? And the brain is we think and we come alongside and we're rational and we're logical, right? Not so. It's one of the reasons that the Hebrews combined the idea of mind and heart in one. You see, Paul says, I want you to think the same thing, but I want it to be an attitude. I want it to be a mindset. You see here, it is more than just a creed or a confession. Creeds and confessions are useful, helpful, godly things that we might think the same doctrines. But we must go beyond that. We must go to a mindset or an attitude that springs from these truths. And you see, this kind of thinking the same thing can't be orchestrated. You know how you orchestrate unity? Have you ever done this, maybe at home or at work? It's kind of like... Kissinger on shuttle diplomacy. You go to one. Okay, what would you be willing to do? Okay. Then you go to the other. Well, what would you be willing to do? Well, he wouldn't do this. Let me, okay. And back and forth and back and forth we go till we find something that we can agree on. You see, that's not what Paul is talking about here. Here it is the underlying attitude of being of one mind. And this, beloved, is incredibly difficult. To identify, It is far easier to identify someone who thinks heresy. You may have to ask some pointed questions. You may have to put the hot light on top of them. But you can get out what someone is thinking. It's also easier to recognize and identify sin. You watch someone steal something. Or you see someone hurt someone. Or you hear someone blaspheme. But getting at an underlying attitude of mind is exceedingly difficult. That's why Paul pushes this good church, this healthy church at Philippi, to be of one mind, to think the same thing that they might produce harmony. And this requires determination by the Philippians and by you. You see, setting your mind on one thing is the same thing that Peter did not do. You remember Matthew 16? When Christ says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. He says, For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of men. You're allowing other things to distract you. Don't. It's the same reason that Paul says in Romans 8, verse 5, Set your minds on the things of the Spirit the same reason Paul says in Colossians 3 verse 2, set your mind on things above. You see, it requires work and effort. It doesn't come easily. And so that means if today you're sitting and thinking, well, you know, I don't know if I can do that. I'm not sure I can have that kind of attitude. I I know the people that are around me, and, and I know me. God says, I understand that. I know it takes effort. That's why I'm telling you to work at it, to set your mind. And that's why I've given you my grace, my encouragement, my comfort of love, my fellowship of the Spirit, that you might do this. I haven't left you by yourself. Have one mind. But also, Paul says, have one heart. He says you are to have the same mind, but you're also to have the same love. Now, notice what Paul says here. He doesn't say you are to love the same things. So we have the first church of Texas barbecue and the second church of Carolina barbecue and third church of football or the American church. No. It's not just that we are to love the same things. We are to have the same kind of... Of love. We are to be united together in love. Because you see, the beginning of love is a harmony of views, but it is not sufficient. We must cultivate this kind of love together. Because if we are honest with ourselves, if agreement of views was sufficient, we could marry near the first, second, or third person we came across. You just have a list of 15 questions. You rattle them off. You figure out what the percentage of agreement is. And you get married. How many of you did that? No, you cultivate a love. You get to know that person. You know their likes. You know their fears. You know their weaknesses and their strengths. This is what the church is called to do, to be united. You see, this is almost a prerequisite to thinking the same things. Because if you don't have an affection, a love cultivated for one another... You won't be concerned about the same things. And so our hearts must be joined in a kind of mutual affection. It's kind of like congregational singing. It doesn't help when everybody sings, even the same words, at different times. And I'm not talking about a round. We're not going to break into row, row, row your boat. No, I mean when everybody's just a half beat off it kind of grates on you, doesn't it? Sometimes, if that happens in a congregation, they'll stop and say, all right, let's start over. You see, it's not just that we're on the same page with the same music. We need to be executing at the same time, cultivated together. We have one mind. We have one heart. But we also are called, Paul says, to have one will. He says we are to be in full accord and of one mind. He says we are to be in full accord. We are actually to be of one soul, Paul says, of the same soul, to have the same passions, the same desires, the same end in mind. That is what the Christian is called to, to be of one soul. And then the Christian is also called to be of one mind. Now you say to yourself, wait a minute here. Did Paul lose his place? Because in my Bible here it says be of the same mind and now it says be of one mind. Oh, I understand. Now Fred's going to explain to me how these are two different Greek words and he'll explain the the nuances. No. It's the same words. There's only one tiny difference and it's not in the word mind. It's here we are to be of one mind with respect to a goal. Not just things that we think about. But that same thinking and thinking about those same things should be toward one goal. Thinking of one aim. Both the New American Standard and NIV, from different perspectives, come to the same conclusion. Intent on the same thing, they say. It is one purpose, one aim. Why is this? Why such an emphasis on being thinking the same things, feeling the same things? Desiring the same things. If you haven't noticed, all three parts of man are there. Mind, heart, and will. Why do all of these things need to be aligned? It's because disunity is the most fearful thing in a church. It can destroy a church. You may say to yourself, well, that's okay. We're a healthy church. We're just planning for this next stage of ministry. We've got people involved in ministry. We have teachers. We have preachers. We have Sunday school teachers. We have people involved with teaching our children. We want to reach our community. We're going to start VBS soon. We shouldn't be concerned about that. This is a problem for sick, bad, unhealthy churches. No. No. Disunity is most dangerous for a healthy church. Why? I thought it was sick, bad churches that had problems. No. Think about it. What marks a healthy church? People wanting to do things. People wanting to make an impact for the kingdom. People having ideas and acting on them. People wanting to spend their lives for Christ. Christ. This is where disunity can show up because there's activity. You see, there's a greater danger of collision when there's movement. Objects sitting around like slugs don't bounce into each other. The more movement there is, the more chance of friction. The more desire there is to reach the community, the more oomph to that, the more chances that that will take different expressions. And if we do not come together on that, do not put each other first on that, that can cause friction and disunity. You see, it's something to be aware of, not to despair of, but to be aware of. To think and be pointed toward what the Lord would have us do. You see, when we have this sense of earnestness, the fact that beliefs actually do matter, that the truth does matter, and that we need to carry out this mission, that is when we must be on our guard against disunity. Because the solution is not to give up and say, well, then maybe truth doesn't matter. Maybe we shouldn't do anything. Maybe we should take the friction away. No. We just need to apply the biblical principles here. So what does this then look like in the life of the church? What is the expression of unity that shows up here in our passage? I think it's two things, three things. First, a right aim. Second, a right assessment. And third, a right action. Paul says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. You see, unity expresses itself in having the right aim for our actions and our goals and our activity. Paul hits... Two big ones right away. He says, first, do not be selfish. Do not do it through rivalry. Same word that was used before about those who preached Christ for rivalry and strife so that they could be one up on everybody else, so that they could be first. They were concerned about what it brought to them. You see, Paul says, you cannot do the work of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ through rivalry. How do we know that? Galatians 5.20 tells us that rivalry or strife is a work of the flesh. It does not come from the spirit. We cannot go forward worrying about how we are first at all times. Now I want you to notice something else that Paul does here that is very interesting and is oftentimes not rewarded in our society. Paul is pointing out yet again the importance of motives as opposed to the importance of results. Do you notice that? Paul is not concerned just simply that the stuff gets done. And however it gets done, and however many body bags are on the side, go for it. No. Paul is pointing here directly to the motives that they have in getting the work of the ministry done. He says... That is critical and important. We are not to be selfish. We're also not to do things through conceit. This word for conceit here is a very colorful and interesting word. It's actually two Greek words that are stuck together to make a new one. It's the word for glory or worth or honor with the word for worthless or vain or empty, stuck together. That's why you get kind of an old King james this word, vainglory, out of it. I believe he's a character in Pilgrim's Progress. What this kind of glory, what does this kind of glory look like? It's the kind of glory that is empty. It doesn't build anyone else up. It's only thinking about the self. It does not shine light on the Savior, but rather seeks to have our own benefits, our own personalities put forward. Paul says, you can't do that and be united. You can't. It's bound to lead to rivalry. These two things will feed on themselves. He says, rather instead, the right aim that you should have is one of humility. He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others. What does this mean, humility? This word is not used in the New Testament apart from where Paul uses it. It's not a very popular word. It's, we might even say, not a PC word in Greek society. It means lowliness of mind. And if you were hanging around Athens or the amphitheater in Corinth or in Sparta and you said, I want to cultivate humility, they would laugh at you. You want to be a slave? You want to be someone who's worthless? You want to be somebody with no self-esteem at all? Who are you kidding But you see, Paul takes this word that would have no virtue in it in Greek society. And he says, what the kingdom of Christ is about is turning society on its head. And the way it gets turned on its head starts with our attitude. We cultivate humility of mind. And you see it makes us come to grips with the fact that sanctification in the church is the aim, not the solution. We cannot stand back and say, well, you know, if only he were more holy, I'm sure we could get along. If only she were far more read in her Bible, I'm sure we could work together. If only they were more committed to prayer, then maybe we would have something in common. You see, that's not the way of the cross. That's not the way of the Christian. We are to have aims in mind that put others first, that focus us on the Lord Jesus Christ. But we don't just see right aims. We also see a right assessment. This is involved with this humility. What do we mean by a right assessment? A right assessment seeks to look out at the church and see it as God sees it. To see the church as the beautiful Bride of Christ, dressed up in the glorious grace of Jesus. It means I must think about others before myself, just as the Lord Jesus did. Now, it doesn't mean that I can't ever think about myself, because Paul does say, don't only think of yourself, but also think of others. Paul's not requiring of us that we jettison all of our loves and our desires and our hopes But he's saying we need to put others first. There have been article after article after article in the past year or two about how now today in America, and specifically this generation coming up, is the most narcissistic that the country has ever seen. And there are all kinds of statistics around this. And how people are concerned only with themselves and how they look and how they dress and how they will look in a given situation. There's a sense in which we can look at that and bemoan it. But there's also, have you thought about what a wonderful opportunity for the gospel that is? And how we can show such a sharp difference between the church of Jesus Christ and the world? How as an army of God we go forward putting others in front of ourselves, making sure his hair looks good even if mine is still messed up, making sure her dress is perfect even if mine is wrinkled? This is the call of the church of Jesus Christ to put others first, to put others' interests ahead of our own. And so you may ask yourself then, well, how do I apply this? It's very difficult to think about others as better than me, because that's actually what Paul says, superior, better. He says, think of them in a surpassing way, like the peace that surpasses all understanding, same word. The answer to that is a first hand assessment. You see, when we are tempted to say, I can't think of him better than me because, quite frankly, I've watched him. But you see, what we've done here is we've just cut ourselves off from our own judgment. You see, who do you have first-hand knowledge of? Yourself. That's who you have first-hand knowledge of all the sin in a person's life. And so when you start to dig down in that, You become like Paul and you say in 1 Timothy 1.15 that you are the chief of sinners because you assume the best of others because of the work of God and you look down deep into your own life. And that allows you to make an assessment of humility and that what God needs to do is work on me, not her, not him, not them. He needs to work on me. Well you know that it's important to think the right things. It's important to feel the right things. But as I have said more than once, nobody grows in fuzzy land. And Paul knows that as well too. He says we must take the right actions to express unity. He says unity requires effort. It is natural to the gospel, but if we are honest, it does not come naturally. Your first instinct is not always, well, after you. Well, why don't you take that only piece of pizza? I'm hungry, but you take it. It's not our first reaction. The difference here between adults and children is the children haven't learned to hide it as well. That just bubbles over obviously and easily, and we pointed out. But it doesn't come naturally to us, but it is natural to the gospel. So as we cultivate the gospel, this will show up in our lives. And you see, Paul wants this to show in an effort. You notice he wanted them to be united here in verse 27 of chapter 1. He wanted them to stand side by side. But this outward nature of unity begins with an inward character here in verse 2 of being united in the same mind with the same love. Unity requires your effort. Unity requires my effort. Do you notice here in verse 3 and verse 4 a little difference in tone? Do you notice in verse 4 Paul uses this word several times? Each, own, others. He says, each person needs to look after their own interests. The responsibility is on you. It is individualistic. There is a singular sense to what Paul is saying. He had previously been speaking in the plural. And now he says, you need to express unity. One commentator puts it very well. Those of you that are visual thinkers. If we think of the steadfastness of the church as a line. Facing the world. Rebuffing attacks. Think of, on the other side of that line, two other points of a triangle. So a line coming down to a point. That point is you. It is the individual. The church and its work depends upon unity. And unity depends upon you. Not the person next to you, not the person down the street from you, you. We must cultivate unity in our own lives in order to be steadfast against a world that is in chaos and out of control. You see, the church is to be well in its being, not in general, not in the abstract, but specifically by living the gospel life of unity of mind, heart, and will, devoted to the task that Christ has placed before it. How important is this unity? Let me leave you with a quote. One man says, The chief indication of the prosperous condition of the church is when mutual agreement and brotherly love prevail." Do you know who wrote that? John Calvin. Theologian. University architect. Governmental official. Builder of the church. John Calvin says the most important thing is what Paul says is the most important thing. That you be of one mind. Have the same love. Have the same purpose. Moving forward as one army The army of the Lord Jesus Christ.